Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Paula Termulin to Raise the Line. She's the dean of the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker School of Medicine in Kalamazoo, one of the nation's newer medical schools. Prior to assuming that role in May of 2021, Dr. Tamulin was the regional dean for the Duluth campus at the University of Minnesota Medical School, which has a partial focus of training physicians for rural and Native American communities. Earlier in her career, she was on the faculty of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, Wright State University Boonshoft School of Medicine, and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Tamulin is widely published in surgical oncology and surgical education and has served in a variety of roles for the American College of Surgeons and the Association of American Medical Colleges and other national organizations. And thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks, Michael. So we'd like to start with learning more about our guests. What got you first interested in medicine and particularly in becoming a surgeon? Well, you know, I have friends that tell me that they remember me talking about being a physician or being a doctor when I was in kindergarten. Oh, my goodness. I'm a first-generation college student, so that was perhaps a bit surprising. But my father was ill quite a bit when I was a child. He died when I was 12. We spent a lot of time going back and forth to the hospital. My brother was born prematurely back in the 60s. So I, I was surrounded by medical stuff, if you will. I used to play doctor with my Barbies and I probably had surgery on the horizon when my Barbie camper would have car accidents and then I would take the Barbies to the hospital and fix them. And so, <laughs> Oh my goodness, that is foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And why oncology? Well, I chose to be a surgeon or figured that out during my third year of medical school. So my husband of 37 years, he and I got married right before I started medical school. He's not a physician, but he was a biomedical engineer and working with the ventricular assist device program at St. Louis University, where I went to medical school. And I used to wake up in the middle of the night when his pager would go off to go help with a patient. And I'd be like, who wants to do that? This was early in my medical <laughs> school days. And so I purposefully put my surgery rotation first because I thought I'll just get it out of the way. And needless to say, I fell in love with it. And prior to that, though, I really saw myself as being a primary care physician. And how this all comes together in the realm of surgical oncology is that there's a significant component of longitudinal patient care that goes with that discipline. You spend a lot of years seeing your patients and getting them through some very difficult times. And I found that incredibly rewarding in addition to the surgical component of the discipline. Yeah, I can see how that would be the case. So in terms of leadership, was that something you envisioned for yourself early in your career or was it something that developed unexpectedly? Well, once again, you know, back to my childhood, I was on the safety patrol as a kid. And I think I actually met my husband through a uh, American Red Cross program of leadership development. I attended that as a high schooler, but then I was a facilitator where I met my husband when I was in college. And so I think I, I had sort of some natural leanings towards being in leadership. Having said that, as a medical student, I was heavily influenced by one of my professors, Dr. Ray Slavin, who I did laboratory research between my first and second year of medical school. I'd never really been exposed to that kind of laboratory research. He's a retired allergy immunologist that had a research effort. And I also saw that he 
was able to go outside of St. Louis University and really share that information with others in the way that we do in academic medicine. So it's giving talks, it's teaching other people, et cetera. So I really hold him up as a role model. And then, and then along the way, I had really wonderful mentors, Charles Balch, John Potts, a number of individuals who really helped me see and understand what being a leader could be. So that by the time I was in my professional life as a fully fledged, fully minted assistant professor, associate professor, I was already getting asked to participate in different types of programming to help develop my leadership skills. It's a skill set. You have to really invest the additional time and energy. It's not something back in the day that we thought to include in medical school curriculum, for example, even though we lead teams all the time. So over the years, I really found a lot of satisfaction in being able to help make a difference. That's a personal motto of mine. Whatever I do is to make a difference. And as most leaders will tell you, you move through a process of helping as a physician, that patient in front of you. If you're an educator, you're in academic medicine, you're helping people with your research, you're helping people with your community, you're helping people with your students. And then when you move into these higher roles, like being the dean of a medical school, my whole goal right now is to help our organization make the biggest difference it possibly can for the people of Southwest Michigan and beyond. I mentioned at the beginning that, well, first of all, why don't we back up for a second? Can you just give us an overview of WMED and highlight what you think some of its strengths are? WMED, as the shortened version of our name, because it is quite long, was really created here in Kalamazoo as a way of, of serving this population. But we're a private school. We serve the nation, quite frankly. We have students from all over the country and occasionally a student or two that comes in from Canada because we are in the northern tier. We've just recently completed a new mission and vision process. Part of that was as a young medical school, I was hired at a phase where the school was hungry for an identity. All of its energy had been focused on putting the bricks and mortar in place and all of the appropriate components to create a fully accredited medical school. And so the founding dean, Dr. Hal Jensen, did really an incredible job with that. So when I arrived, it was, well, help us create an identity. So our identity now is one of service to the idea of health equity and really doing that with the population that we serve here in Southwest Michigan, recognizing that we will help train people from all over the country and send them forward. But in the meantime, we're here to help our community. So how does that manifest itself, the health equity mission? Well, it manifests itself along all of the four missions of any medical school. So in our education space, our students have what we call active citizenship. For example, they helped teach some of our underrepresented populations, particularly the Black community. They were able to help do immunizations and education at some of the Black churches that we have here in Kalamazoo. They also do a variety of work with some of our refugee programs that are in the area here. They also go out and serve our unhoused population in Kalamazoo. Zoo. We call it street medicine, which is an initiative started by one of the then residents of our family medicine program in Kalamazoo in partnership with a number of our medical students. So it's that's sort of an exciting part of the education side. On the research side, we have a deep commitment to helping understand and create interventions to reduce infant mortality. In this area, we recognize that that's a, a community-wide partnership with the YWCA, with Western Michigan University, with our hospital partners, Bronson Health and Ascension Borges here in Kalamazoo and many others that contribute to that effort. So that's sort of on the research and I would say community engagement side as well. And then clinically, we serve in many respects the underserved. We're a bit of a safety net in terms of our ambulatory care practices, and we provide service to our local federally qualified health center as well. 
A connected issue is increasing diversity in the physician workforce. That's obviously a topic that's challenging a lot of medical schools. Talk about how WMed is approaching that. Well, first, you have to frame it, I think, in ways that people understand. So we talk a lot here about creating a physician workforce that looks like or reflects and understands the populations that we serve. So, you know, in order to racially diversify and then also including other elements of diversity, such as the LGBTQT community and as well as uh, those that have lower socioeconomic status. I mentioned I was a first generation college student and things like student indebtedness and, and all of that are front and center for us. I, I paid off my student loans the first month I became the dean of a medical school. So you have to kind of pause and think about that. <laughs> my goodness. And, yeah, and wow. you know, I don't want that to happen for anyone else. And so we what we really need to do, though, is get a lot of different voices at the table so we understand each other better and we can really then relate to the patients that we provide care for. And that can happen in a number of different ways. And you have to be very intentional about it. We've come to recognize that you really have to reach down into elementary school to inspire young people to continue their education. We know that the programs that we have, the pathway programs that have been created, are not programs that will bring every one of those young people into medical school, and we're fine with that. If they consider other health professions, we think that's very important in a differentiated healthcare workforce environment. But we know some of them will go to medical school, and we'd love to be the place that they want to come to. And if not us, then someplace else that will treat them well and also help them provide the care that we need them to for the patients. I mentioned at the beginning you're one of the newer medical schools, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's curious to find out how does that happen and why does that happen <laughs> at this? Uh, yeah. And are there any you know particular challenges or advantages to the newness? <laughs> Boy, there's a whole lot I could tell you about that, but let me capture a couple of thoughts. We've recognized that in general, we believe there to be based on a lot of national information promoted often by the Association of American Medical Colleges is understanding that we have a significant sort of looming physician workforce challenge. I think the pandemic has really uncovered not just in the physician space, but particularly uh, in the nursing space where we're shorthanded in so many different ways. And people will say, yeah, we've got plenty of physicians of different, but we're missing certain types. And we recognize that well, we don't really have 100% of all the physicians that we need in the places that we need them. So I think that's kind of like a, a place where you, you have to kind of start with that. And then recognizing that that then sort of spurred a large number of medical schools to sort of pop up on the horizon over the last 10 to 15 years. So WMED is 10 years old. And that's about the time where, I mean, I could easily rattle off five or six other medical schools that are roughly the same age as we are, because these were initiatives either taken on by states or communities to sort of help support that workforce increase of physicians, if you will. The other, just as an aside, because I have an experience with the regional campus model, we've also seen large growth in the numbers of schools that have decided to extend their classes by putting campuses in different locations that are all under the same accreditation or the same medical school. We hope to get there someday. We're not there yet at WMED, but I just came from a conference where people are really doing this all over the country and ways to serve their communities across their states and across their regions, and in that instance, also across Canada. So then that the push was on to create and open the doors to pump more physicians into the workforce. Then the, the other piece of the question has to do with, you know, what is it like to be perhaps at a new school? 
And I think that the first thing I'd say about that is startups can be messy because there's a lot of energy. It's just a huge amount of work to really get a school launched. The school that I have the great privilege of being in charge of launched very, very well. We graduated our fifth class. We actually were able to hire back on our faculty, one of our graduates from the very first class who completed training in internal medicine is now one of our faculty. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Oh, it's totally, you know, coming full circle. And so it's been incredibly rewarding in that regard. But I can also tell you some of the challenges that we have. So I don't have a real deep bench. So for example, if someone retires or moves on or becomes ill, you know, we don't have a lot of extra people that have kind of been trained up to be able to take that role. So that's a piece that I think is an ongoing challenge. And we're seeing that layered on top of what's you know been called the great resignation around the country. So that's one piece that we struggle with. On the other hand, when you're a, a young school, you're a, a relatively small school. We have a, a class of 84 per year. It gives students an opportunity to really engage with us and help drive and improve their circumstances. We listen. We really need them to help us do the job that they need us to do to help educate them and then also participate in things like our strategic planning that we had students and residents help us with. Now, obviously, being dean of a medical school is a tricky enough job in and of itself, but you took over a year ago when the pandemic was well underway. I'm just wondering if you can give us some assessment of how you think WMAT has managed the challenge and also, you know, at the same time trying to educate, you're providing clinical care, which is really complicated, again, under normal circumstances, but you're trying to do that in the middle of a crisis. I am very fortunate that while I was working at the University of Minnesota, we had incredible leadership. So I came ready to understand and have a mindset around what is it that we need to do. I'm sure for the listeners, particularly those who are medical students, I know some of you are the individuals who have been deeply impacted by the experience of the pandemic. I mean, this is a professionally defining moment for all of us in terms of how we reflect on the work that we do and, and the people we provide care for and the disparities in healthcare that it's uncovered. And then layering on top of that, the practical components of, do we have enough personal protective equipment? That's what was keeping students out of clinics and hospitals for a long time, including here in Kalamazoo. We had a wonderful community benefactor who has relationships in China, and we were able to actually get some of that equipment early on to be able to provide and get our students back into clinics and hospitals as quickly as possible. But I think we learned some important lessons. That was definitely true in Minnesota. It has been very true here at WMED, which is leveraging this type of the virtual experience in good ways. So we know that no one has graduated a medical student and created a physician who's not touched a patient. We want to be very clear about that for the listeners who, <laughs> who are just trying to understand medical education in general. No school has done that. But we learned that we can actually prepare students to make their onward, in-clinic, in the operating room experiences more efficient by providing some virtual learning experiences in advance. And then in the classroom setting, finally, we started to think about, well, why do we have to have people sitting in the seats? Why can't we be thinking about how to do remote learning and to be more creative about how we deliver that content? And to me, that is the silver lining because 
we're a bit stodgy in the world of medicine when it comes to education because <laughs> the stakes are so high. We're reluctant to just go out there and do something wildly different. Um, but on the other hand, it's something that we really need to do. And I think we've learned that we can leverage these tools now in ways that will enhance the educational process for our students. It helps us provide care to patients via telehealth in ways that, you know, it took a pandemic to kind of move us along that path. Uh, and we've understood a little bit more about the efficiencies and we've understood why it's so important to then also have in-person experiences with colleagues and peers that allow us to really be with each other in a way that you just can't do in the two-dimensional space of a, of a Zoom. Absolutely, yeah. Well, speaking of educational tools, so Osmosis, as you mean, is an education company and we love to fill knowledge gaps and we love to ask our guests for some direction about, you know, a, what you think is a knowledge gap, a myth, a topic that's of particular concern to you that you'd say osmosis, you know, if you guys made a video about that, that would really help. I'll tell you the thing that immediately comes to mind when you ask that question, which is how can we do a better job of educating our public and engaging them in the science work? And I think there's some people thinking about this very deeply, but the challenges we have around increasing the vaccination rate in the United States is really front of mind for me. It's something that we at WMED have been uh, personally involved with in terms of requiring it for our employees and students because we see it as a core value of reflecting the science and then also respect and protection for the populations we serve. And yet we recognize that there are individuals that don't have that same belief system. And I think as a country, the pandemic caught us off guard a bit. We haven't learned how to communicate effectively about how important it is that we do this. And so I, I think one place osmosis could spend some time is helping all of us understand how do we build the communication tools that we can make these kinds of conversations more accessible to people so, so we can you know, get the hearts and minds going in the right direction so we can protect the public health. We really don't have the trust of the public. And that's something we have to work very hard on. And I think it does come down to communication. Yeah, it echoes remarks that Dr. Shish Jha made. He's um, obviously now at the White House. When he was talking to us on this show, he was still at Brown University. And he said he thinks it's really one of the greatest challenges of our time, this communication around mm -hmm. science and medicine and the trust factor that's been frayed during the pandemic. So, Well, so many of us, you know, generationally, those of us that are in leadership positions today in American medicine, we come to the table with an inherent trust. I mean, part of it's because of it's our profession. But if you just sort of look generationally, there's far more assumption that when your public health officials tell you something. We are very fortunate at WMED. We have the medical director for the, the public health department of Kalamazoo and Calhoun counties on our faculty. He's fabulous and he knows how to communicate very effectively to the public. But So we think about this a lot at our place uh, about how can we do a good job of this. And really it caught us off guard because we weren't even seeing it. We weren't really hearing it. We weren't identifying that certainly those uh, generation or two younger than I am really don't have that trust. And if you're a community of color in particular, these are individuals who have mistrust for all kinds of reasons. And we just really didn't see that coming as we've tried to communicate effectively during the pandemic. Right. So as we're wrapping up here, we like to ask our guests to provide our audience, which again is a lot of medical students, early healthcare professionals, some advice about meeting the challenges of this moment and also looking ahead to their careers. Well, you know, I said before that the pandemic has been really a defining moment for all of us. And it's one of those few times in life, regardless of where you are in your 
profession, how, how long you've, you know, 30 years of practice like me or someone who just put a hood on and graduated them, you know, in early May, we have all experienced this together. This was a tabletop exercise for me when I was in medical school, that this is reality for you. And I think that you're going to help us not only solve some of the big issues that we have today around how we deliver our healthcare, how we provide care for our patients. You also have sort of the creative mindset and the open-mindedness, and now this incredible experience of the pandemic to really galvanize us into action. I was incredibly heartened to see medical school applications went up 20% in uh, 2020 that year. I was predicting, again, wrong, I was predicting that we might actually have for the first time a dearth of applications. Instead, it increased by 20% because that inspiration was there. So I think we have a lot to learn from our younger listeners about how they wanna tackle the problems today of medicine and that they're committed and have seen firsthand of how important it is to have really bright minds and the real successes of when we work together to solve the problems. So I look forward to seeing what they have. I hope they'll be able to take care of me because I know I'm going to need them. <laughs> That's one thing that's true of all of us. We're going to need help at some point. Yep. Well, listen, that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you very much for your time, Dr. Tremillan, and, and wish you best of luck in your important work there. Thank you. Been a pleasure. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.